Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Valerie Tiberius, author of the book, What Do You Want Out of Life? A Philosophical Guide to Figuring Out What Matters. Valerie, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. And we're glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Well, I'm a philosophy professor at the University of Minnesota. Um, So I live and teach in Minneapolis, um, where it's currently very cold. I mostly teach ethics to undergraduates and graduate students. Um, I'm developing a course for um, mid-level undergraduate students on how to live your life. So a kind of cook um, course that's motivated by by this book, actually. Um, yeah, I live here with my husband and uh, two little dogs. <laughs> so it, it sounds like it, it's it's a bit of a chicken egg problem. Which came first, the, the the inspiration to write the book, or was it the inspiration to teach the class? Oh, absolutely. the The book came. Wait, is that actually true? Yes, the book came first. I so the book I stems from a, a very long standing interest in these kinds of issues. Um, I wrote my dissertation actually a million years ago about um, deliberation about the good. So I was writing in graduate school about how people think and reason about what's good. I was including what's morally good and what's good for you, but that's been a longstanding interest. And then gradually I got interested in well-being, which is a thing that philosophers have written about for a long time. Um, And that led me to write um, a sort of academic monograph about the topic of well-being. Uh, And then actually it was my mostly my dad who suggested that maybe I should write something uh, for a a larger audience than the typical audience that philosophers write for. Actually, I should say, I should give a a shout out to the Princeton editor, Rob Tempio, because quite a number of years ago, maybe even 10 years ago now, he approached me at a conference and said, hey, you you ever thought of writing something for a more, for a broader audience? So it was Rob and my my father who were the real um, instigators for this book. It, it, it's a fascinating book on, on so many levels, but one of the ones that fascinated one of the elements that fascinated me most was your point about how that this is something that, as you've already noted, philosophers have talked about. And yet, as you describe in your book, it's something that philosophy has gotten away from and how the questions that you address have, you know, like other disciplines have moved in to fill the void, most notably psychology. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about what, you know, broadly speaking, what philosophy has to offer to this question that you know, we get right down to it. Everybody asks themselves at some point or, or sometimes at several points during their lives. Yeah, I, so... Um, back when I was first getting into the well-being area in philosophy, I that was around the same time that philosoph- that sorry that psychologists were really getting busy talking about um, happiness and well-being, and you know this positive psychology movement was really on the rise. And I looked at what they were 
doing. And I thought, oh, God, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need philosophy anymore. So I was, I was actually um, myself concerned and interested in the question of what um, philosophy has to offer in particular. And I think, you know, my answer to that question is that psychologists, I, I actually think the work in that area of psychology is wonderful and fascinating. So this is not a criticism of it. Um, but they study important things that they can measure. And many of those things are um, subjective psychological states like a feeling of satisfaction with your life or positive, happy emotions. Um, they can measure things like um, how much stress you report in your life. And those things, of course, are very important. But I think what philosophy can do is um, bring these ideas. So, so you might think these different things that psychologists study, like life satisfaction, positive emotion, stress, those are all important things, but how do they fit together? And what do we do with this information um, that, you know, for example, keeping a gratitude journal will increase your life satisfaction. So does that mean you should devote your life to being more grateful? Or does it mean it's a thing you could do on weekends? Um, there are a lot of sort of questions about how all the all these um, psychological studies should get synthesized into a into a whole life. And then also there are a bunch of um, possible components of a good life that psychology either leaves out or doesn't really address because it's not something that is easy for them to measure. So for instance, um, most of us want to live happy lives for ourselves, but we don't want to do that at the expense of other people. We don't want to... Um, as my, my a friend of mine puts it, we don't want to be assholes in the pursuit of happiness. Um, so we, we, we think there are moral constraints on the pursuit of your own good, of your own well-being. Um, and that's something, talking about what those moral constraints are and um, um, how, they, how they constrain what you can do for yourself, those are philosophical sorts of questions. Um, yeah, so that's, I guess that's, that's what, what I think philosophy has to offer, a kind of synthesizing a comprehensive um, and synthesizing picture of how to put all these goals we might have in life together. It gets to that element of philosophy that I think sometimes uh, it gets broadly lost in the popular imagination, which is this idea of, of, of sorting your thinking in a way to clearly identify problems or challenges and, and ascertaining the best ways to solve them in, in, in a sense of ordering one's thinking. And, and I thought that your book does a very nice job of providing it, you know, templates for how best to do that to really, you know, achieve, as you describe in your title, you know, what you want out of life. Well, thank you. I said that certainly that's what I was going for. So I'm glad to hear I was successful. Um, I mean, I think, you know, just putting this back in connection with your previous question, um, 
psychology, psychological studies can tell you if this is your goal, here's how to achieve it. So if what you want is more positive emotion, um, here are some things you could do. If what you want is more life satisfaction, here are some things you can do. I think what psychology doesn't really aim to do is to think about um, what is the worth of these things in a human life and what is the comparative worth of them? Um, so what is it worth trading for something else? Uh, those are the philosophical questions that lead you to think about values. And that gets into the uh, first chapter of your book, which talks about the, the goals and conflicts and, and, and how to sort, how to you know sort that. I was what if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon how we can uh, you know identify our goals and, and, and the role that conflicts play in, in that uh, that that make that a bit more complicated. Yeah, I guess, you know, if I think about my own life and the lives of my friends and the lives of people that I read about, um, it seems like often the, the, the kind of root cause of, of struggle and suffering is some kind of conflict. And, you know, the most, the most common, almost um, trite kind of conflict is work-life balance. Everybody's heard of that. Um, it's incredibly common, which doesn't mean it's not important. I think it is a, a an important conflict for people. Um, and my what I try to do in the book is to talk about how it's helpful to see what the conflicts are, so to understand which goals you have are in conflict, and then to identify the what I call the values that drive the conflict or that are underlying the conflict. So um, you might have a, your, your sort of on the face of it conflict might be between, um, you know, baking something for the uh, PTA bake sale for your kid's school versus um, working on the paper. You're, maybe you're uh, doing a master, an MBA or something, and you have an assignment. And so you have a conflict between the time spent studying for an exam versus baking something for a bake sale. Um, and I, what I do is I try to say, look, in these conflicts, you can identify underlying values like the value of being a good parent and the value of successful career or of developing your skills. And it, when you identify those root, those core values underneath the conflicts, um, you can then take steps to uh, resolve the conflict in some way. But if we, if we don't, if we don't see what the real values are, uh, we're, we're, we're sort of hamstrung when we try to figure out how to resolve conflicts among our goals. Now, one of the other things you do in this book is you don't just explain this process, but you also offer strategies for how it is that we can address this. And I was, I was, I was struck by your strategies because there, there are things that, you know, I, I've, I've kind of, you know, 
you know, seen or, or heard hinted at before, but the way you outline them, it, it's like they're, they're great tools for, you know, burrowing down and getting these questions. It, it, a lot of the stuff is, you know, people might say, well, that's pretty obvious, but the challenge is, is, is understanding that is to say, what actually should our values be? And it's really, as you describe in, in, in uh, your book, it's about, in, in a sense, understanding ourselves and, you know, understanding what really matters to us. And, and, and then you provide, the tools needed to really burrow down and answer that in terms of better identifying what our goals should be. Yeah. So I, this, this is where the book is probably closest to a, to a self-help book. And I'm, I'm getting a little more comfortable with thinking about it that way. Um, the kinds of strategies, I, I suppose what, what made me think it's important to talk about those strategies is that people like if you ask people what they value, they don't say, oh, I don't know. They think they know. And so it might be that, um, you know, here I am telling people it's important to do this kind of reflective work to identify what you really care about. And it struck me that, you know, someone just reading that might think, well, I already know what I care about. And to some extent, that's true. I mean, I'm sure if I, you know, asked you, Mark, what do you care about? You might say some things about friendship and maybe creating podcasts and reading great books, whatever. Um, but the, the my my thought is that we know in these broad outlines, but we don't know what we care about deeply um, in detail and depth. So we don't know what matters to us compared to other things? Like how are these things prioritized that we care about? Um, we don't always know what it means to fulfill the value of say friendship or family or, um, or we, you know, for instance, what is a great podcast? What, it, what is being a great podcast interviewer? What exactly is the standard of success that you're holding yourself to? So it's those sorts of details that I think we can be uninformed about. And now again, I think maybe the obvious first approach is, well, just turn your attention inward, introspect, and, you know, figure it out. Like, what do I care about? Well, what do I think I care about? Um, and that's where I think that power of introspection is not very great, and we need other strategies. And the reason for that has to do with the importance of our emotional responses to, to what we care deeply about and value. And the uh, some sometimes the inaccessibility of our emotions. We can we can sort of um, think we know how we feel, but we can deceive ourselves because maybe we like to think that we're a certain kind of person and we really aren't, um, or we just don't. We're not used to attuning to how we feel about things. So I do, I try to offer some strategies for getting around that kind of, um, the, the very hyper-rational introspective brain that just, you know, looks, looks under the brightest light because that's where you can see, um, instead of trying to get underneath that and finding out about emotional patterns that might be hidden to us. And as you describe, it's not necessarily 
and exclusively internal exploration. Some of the strategies you note are how you can learn from others, how it can be a more interactive process, and how that can gain you insights that you don't necessarily get just from that that process of introspection. Absolutely. I, I do think, I mean, not everyone has this a friend who's able to do this but if you if you it's you're a fortunate person if you do and i have a, a a couple of friends like this who can tell you something about the patterns that they see that's very informative and tell you in a nice enough way that you can actually hear it rather than being defensive um yeah i think that's really important cuz some sometimes another person can see um that there's something you really love doing, but you've never thought of it as um, worthwhile. So you haven't let yourself, you know, like maybe every time you go dancing with a friend, you're absolutely in ecstasy and just experiencing all this bliss and flow, but you don't really plan to do any dancing. You don't make it a priority for yourself because you think it's kind of silly. And a friend might point out to you, Hey, you know, (laughs) the happiest I see you is when you're out dancing. Why don't you take some darn lessons or something? Um, (laughs) And in some ways, that's the the thing that I thought was really neat is is that 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 process of discovery that you you outlined, and you and that itself is, is you know as you describe a pretty formidable challenge, and yet it doesn't end there. Because once you, we've identified goals, sometimes it's about sorting the goals. Because yes, we could talk about how we love dancing and we we, we should do it more because it makes us happy. But you know, there, there's other goals. We also want to spend time, you know, you know, finishing, you know, watching Downton Abbey or <laughs> or, or, or some other goal. And and you describe how you, you that there are tools as well that that exist for managing conflicts between differing goals. So I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon the, the, those those conflicts, not all of which are necessarily the same, and uh, how it is that we can respond to them. Yeah. Um, I hate to think that finishing Downton Abbey is a basic value, uh, probably. (laughs) I I hope there's something more to that, Mark. Um, So exactly, even, even when you know what your most uh, deeply held core values are, they can still come into conflict. Even if you find the perfect values that fit you the best, um, life is is going, you know, our time and resources are limited. So there's always going to be conflicts. Um, That's why I think this, this whole thing is a, is a work in progress really. Um, But the most obvious strategy for resolving conflicts is to go at, you know, go at things a different way or change their priority. So you can, um, you know, if your, your means to the end is something that you can adjust and that would produce less conflict in your life, that's kind of a, that's the easiest sort of solution to conflicts. You know, so for example, if what you value is good health and fitness and your current strategy is, um, running, uh, but then you're, you're running, it turns out not to be 
compatible with the fact that you're losing the cartilage in your knees, as happens as you get older, you can pick up a different kind of sport, hopefully. Um, so that, that sort of adjusting means to ends is one strategy. But for me, the most important kind of strategy that's, I think, not always articulated or not always noticed is, and the one I spend the most time talking about in the book, is the strategy of reinterpretation. And that's the strategy of um, understanding what it means to succeed in terms of that value in a different way that produces less conflict in your life. Um, That, I think, is... So, you know, if we go back to the work-life balance issue... Um, people have particular views about what it means to succeed in their jobs. They have very specific interpretations about what success is. Um, And those interpretations of success can create problems if they're super demanding and you also want to have a family and and children who love you and a spouse who, who, you know, doesn't feel left out um, and ignored. Um, so reinterpreting what career success means to you, I think, is an important strategy for reducing conflict and also an essential strategy as you, life, you know, your circumstances change. Because as we get older, things, you know, I mean, our bodies fall apart, but other things happen too. The, the demands um, that our families put on us are different at different times of our life. Uh, so there's lots of environmental or circumstantial change that uh, necessitates that kind of reinterpretation. And how you also talk in, in more detail as to how sometimes those environmental factors can get in the way of, of our ability to, to attain our goals and, 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 and even sometimes to, to decide uh, what, what, you know, those goals are or, or, or how, how to value them. How can philosophy uh, help us to, or how, how can, uh, you know, we approach that in such a way as to better deal with what we might think of as these external complications? So one of the extra, I'm not sure if this is what you're thinking about, but one of the external complications I talk about in my book is, um, you know, essentially sexism or racism or other kinds of prejudice that people face that, um, you know, through no fault of your own, um, make certain kinds of goals difficult to achieve. Um, And I think there's a kind of reframing or reinterpretation there that can be helpful to people. It's helpful to acknowledge that there are those kinds of obstacles and, you know, sexism and and racism and other kinds of um, prejudice are not the only sorts of external obstacles for sure. Um, But they're, they're, they're kind of familiar to many of us. Um, And I think, you know, thinking philosophically about those obstacles can help us, see them for what they are, and also recognize that um, there might be goals that we could adopt 
that have to do with changing those kinds of prejudices and structures that make life difficult for us um, that would have a sort of double purpose. So it would be a goal that we could work towards achieving and feel good about working towards achieving. Um, And it would also be a goal that might actually, if we make some progress, it might help us to achieve our other goals. Um, so that's that, I guess that's a bit complicated, but, um, but that's kind of how I was seeing it. I, I thought it was worth considering the valuation because it sometimes it's, it, you know, it, it, it shapes the amount of investment we need to do to achieve the goal. I mean, it's easier for us, for example, to say, spend time with our families when, because they're home than it is to, you know, get in the car and drive and go learn how to, how to dance, even if it might necessarily make us happier. And, 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 and I, I thought that was fascinating as well. But as you point out in the book that sometimes the, uh, you know, that we could do things that, that matter to us, that, 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 that we derive value from, but sometimes uh, we, we can't necessarily succeed in doing so, and, and that your, your book addresses that as well. I mean, when, when we face that, that that challenge of saying, you know, this is what we want to, we desire this goal, but you know, it, it's it, it, the you know the the, the 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 means aren't there, or or or, or uh, you know something else is getting in the way. And, and then you discuss how it is that we can think about you know addressing that and, and the choices that are available once we reach that point. Yeah, I think sometimes you just have to learn to laugh at yourself um, because, you know, so I think that the kinds of values, it makes sense for us to, um, to, to, to put at the center of our lives and to, to, to plan for our values that fit who we are psychologically. Um, but some of what we are psychologically is kind of messed up and unchangeable. And that's just an unfortunate fact of life. Um, so you can imagine somebody who, so I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by, um, people who choose to do these kinds of extreme sports, like free climbing, climbing these dangerous peaks without ropes. So you can imagine somebody who is like that and also wants to, you know, some of these climbers actually have um, partners and children and families who love them while they're doing these extremely risky things. And you can, you can imagine a person like that thinking, it would be better if I didn't value these kinds of extremely dangerous, risky um, adventure sports and yet not being able to change themselves in that way. Um, you know, sometimes that's just, it could be for, for many of these people, they're just stuck with that. That is just what they are like. And any attempt to um, pretend that they're not like that or just change their values to, to fit um, a person, the person they would like to be, uh, will always be full of frustration because the, the, the thrill seeking, their thrill seeking nature, their, their adventure, their sense for, for their love of risk and the, the kind of exhilaration they get from being, um, in a risky position, that's just too sticky (laughs) in their personality. Um, and at that point, you know, I think, we have to learn to live with it. Um, and our families do 
as well. Uh, so that's not, it's not, I don't, it doesn't really seem like a solution, but I, I think it's, I think it's true. I think there are certain things like that, that you, you might make an effort to change them, but you really might not be able to. And then you just have to accept if it's something that you're really not happy with, you can try to have a sense of humor about it. Um, but sometimes that really is the best we can do. And I think it also, I mean, I, I think the fact of that is also relevant to how we are in relationship with people because we have to, you know, if I'm friends with one of these crazy rock climbers, I have to acknowledge that, you know, they're just very different from me. And I can't really understand that kind of thrill seeking. I really can't understand it. I find it, I, that's why I'm so fascinated by it. It's just so different from me. But it's not my decision to say you're you're pursuing the wrong things. You're doing it wrong. You're living your life wrong. Um, because if that's how they are, then that's how they are. And then, of course, there's the flip side to that, which is considering radical change. The, the idea that you maybe say to, you know, you, you undertake rock climbing yourself, even though it is so, you know, daunting a prospect uh, and you can't see yourself doing it, but it, it you know, it, of what it might open up for you as well. Yeah. Okay. Not rock climbing though, but maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe something. Yeah. The, so I, I was really motivated to talk about the radical change um, possibility because of uh, reading Tara Westover's memoir, Educated, uh, and, and certain other stories I'd heard too about people who uh, who have religious transformations, who, um, you know, leave a church or, or join a church um, because of some major change that they've had. Um, and so I was, in that part of the book, I was thinking about, you know, all of my uh, philosophical, my whole philosophical picture is always about moving from where you are to a better position. So you start with what you value now and you try to make clarifications or reinterpretations. You try to modify, but you're always stuck with the basic. Um, you're always, uh, you always start from what you have. And my question in that part of the book about radical change was, you know, is it ever possible to just have a kind of complete transplant of values? Um, and I think it's actually quite a tricky question. So I think in some way it's possible to have a transplant of values, but if you're going to do it as part of a conscious process that you are engaged in, there is going to have to be some kind of connection to what came before. Now, what we've been talking about here is primarily an internal process, or we've been uh, up to this point, you know, it, it, it's it's presented as primarily an internal process in your book. And yet you make it clear that there is that external component. We, and you've made reference to that, uh, you know, throughout uh, this interview, where you talk about how, you know, there that, that 
others bring a value that helps us with this process. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon that. Yeah, so other people enter in a few ways. And the the most important way for the purpose of this book is that um, I think for most of us, the vast majority of our values involve other people. Um, so one of the things that people, if, if you ask people what they value, and I think even if they've made some um, efforts to, to um, you know, uncover their, their deepest values and their sort of emotional patterns, uh, people value friendships and families and communities. That's just a fact of life for most of us. Um, so, you know, figuring out what's good for your own life, figuring out what matters to you, it just leads you to other people directly because we are social creatures and we care about our relationships with each other deeply and profoundly. Um, even, you know, even the projects that you might value that you think are individual, like um, learning to play music or speak a language or do a sport or some kind of art or whatever, um, almost all of these things have some kind of social component. Uh, people who learn music, play music that's written by other people, take lessons from teachers, play in bands with other people, play for audiences, all of this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, at, just to make the point again, we are social creatures. I think Aristotle was right about that. Um, and we, we just, um, it doesn't, there, there is, there are very few people who can, engage in a process of reflecting on their values and trying to improve their lives without almost immediately thinking about the effects on others. Um, so that's the main thing. I also, uh, I do talk about moral values and moral constraints in the book, which is a different way that other people, um, I guess you could say, impinge or influence on our own uh, process of figuring out what matters and pursuing our values. Um, and I, I take the position in the book that most people who read this book are likely to think they want to be a basically moral person. So, um, you know, if it turned out that being a good podcast interviewer meant you know, selling your soul to the devil or <laughs> lying to everybody left and right, or, uh, you know, sacrificing your friends, you probably would find another career. And I think that's true of most people that we don't want to be grossly immoral for the sake of, of our own uh, self-interested pursuits. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I end the book is by talking about those, those kinds of moral constraints. I, I like that part of it too, because you do, it, 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 it was kind of interesting to, to hear you describe, you know, your, your focus and your teaching, because it does bring what you do in the book back to that, which is that we don't just do this uh, in a vacuum with that, that even when we are, you know, making these decisions and bringing other people, we can't, that's not the extent of their impact. We have to consider, you know, that, you know, that there's this whole broader world behind it and, and beyond it. And that can also, you know, impact 
our, the valuation that we have and, and the goals we set for ourselves. That's really right. And I, my effort in the book was to really try not to be, to, to, to make the point that you just made, but to really try not to be moralistic about it and, you know, and to sort of say, we, this is what we really should do. You should this and you should that. Um, but rather to say, look, you know, you, you reader, you probably already think that it's good to be basically honest and fair. Um, and what does that mean for how you think about your own goals? And actually, it's interesting that you brought it back to teaching because that's how I've, I used to be much more moralistic in my teaching when I taught ethics. Um, I'm, I'm not sure why, young and inexperienced, and <laughs> that was just how it was. Um, but lately, I'm very much more, when I teach Introduction to Ethics, I'm much more of the mindset that, you know, you already have a moral perspective. You already have moral values. Let's think about what they are, how other people might have different ones, how to talk to each other um, if you have different moral perspectives, what those moral values that you already have imply for how you live your life. That's that's more how I think about it lately. Hmm. Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, I'm working on um, getting completely over a cold. That is my that's my main project. I have I'm teaching. Uh, I'm I'm also tomorrow's the first day of classes, so I'm I'm getting getting my classes ready. And then the the thing that I'm I'm excited about is um, that I'm con, con, I'm preparing a new class that's kind of motivated by this book. Um, so it's going to be a more practical, a class that uh, doesn't have exams, but that um, gets students to engage in the sort of practice of some, some of the practices that are recommended by the psychological research on happiness and some practices that are recommended by, um, philosophical work on, uh, well-being and fulfillment. Um, so I'm excited about that. Who knows? It could turn into an, another book, that experience. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. It sounds like it's going to be an, uh, an exciting project to undertake. Thanks so much. It was really enjoyable to talk to you, Mark. And it's enjoyable to speak with you as well, Valerie. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.